Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. At 1 Kings chapter 17, verses 17 through 24 this morning as we continue our series on Elijah the prophet. 1 Kings chapter 17, again we're going to be looking at verses 17 through 24. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, you should be able to find a paperback Bible underneath one of the seats in front of you. Unless you're one of the few people that sit right here in the front row, they don't have seats in front of them, so I trust that they have their Bibles. Uh, but the rest of you should be able to find a paperback Bible in one of the seats in front of you. I believe our text is on page 170. If it's not, it's really close to that, but I'm pretty sure it's on page 170 in those paperback Bibles. So 1 Kings chapter 17, verses 17 through 24, if you are able, I invite you now to stand for the reading of God's word. After this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill, and his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. And she said to Elijah, what have you against me, O man of God? You have come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. And he said to her, give me your son. And he took her from her arms and carried him up into the upper chamber where he lodged and laid him on his own bed. And he cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourn by killing her son? And then he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, let this child's life come into him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah, and the life of the child came into him again, and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, See, your son lives. And the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. Grass withers and the flowers fade, but the Lord, word of the Lord abides forever. You can be seated. Well, many of you are probably familiar with the works of C.S. Lewis, if not books like Mere Christianity and the Screwtape Letters. You might know films like The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, or Prince Caspian, that were based upon his children's series, The Chronicles of Narnia. But what some of you may not know is that C.S. Lewis was a bachelor for most of his life, not getting married until he married Joy Davidman in 1956 at the age of 58. But shortly after they were married, uh, Joy Davidman was diagnosed with cancer, and after a brief remission, the cancer returned, and she died shortly thereafter. Some of you might know that C.S. Lewis documents his grief at her passing in a book called A Grief Observed. But I just want you to imagine for a moment waiting all of that time to get married, and then having your wife diagnosed with cancer. And then I want you to imagine celebrating the remission of that cancer, rejoicing in the healing and delivering power of God, only to have that cancer then return and take her after just four short years of marriage. Well, it's very possible that in the midst of that sorrow and loss and grief, that C.S. Lewis might have concluded that it would have been better for him to have never gotten married at all. That it would have been better to have just remained single rather than to now sense that what he thought was his greatest blessing on earth turns out to now feel more like a curse. And perhaps you've been there as well. That you've sensed the anguish of a, of a joy, of a blessing that had been stripped away, snatched away 
so that what once felt like a great blessing now ends up just feeling like more of a curse. And it's possible that this widow in Zarephath that we read about in 1 Kings chapter 17 was feeling very similarly. As we continue our series on the triumph of God and the ministry of Elijah the prophet, we do indeed see triumph here in this passage. But it doesn't begin with triumph. It begins with tragedy. We see both tragedy and triumph in 1 Kings chapter 17, verses 17 through 24. And we need to recall that when we first meet this widow earlier in the chapter, remember that she's out gathering sticks. She's gathering these sticks so she can prepare one last meal for her and her son to enjoy this meal and then die together of starvation in the midst of this drought, a drought that has been brought on in Israel and obviously now the surrounding regions of Sidon where they're located now. It's been brought on because of Israel's covenant disobedience under King Ahab as they turned from worshiping the Lord to worshiping Baal. And now there's this covenant curse of a drought that has impacted them and it's threatened their life. But everything changed for the better with the arrival of Elijah the prophet for this widow and for her son. We last left this passage where God is miraculously sustaining what little flour and what little oil she had so that God is sustaining the life of this widow and her son and Elijah to survive this drought. Or so it seemed. Or so it seemed. Life broke in where death seemed almost certain with the arrival of Elijah the prophet. But now in the midst of the joy of that deliverance, death intrudes when life is being celebrated. Tragedy strikes, creating the crisis that we read about in verses 17 and 18. The crisis intrudes in verse 17. Let's read it again just to remember what, what's happening here. We read that after this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill. And his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. This means that he died. The boy died. And this is made clear both by the words and responses of the mother in verse 18, but also Elijah himself in verses 20 through 22. The child died. And this death of the boy shatters whatever sense of security that this widow had developing under the gracious provision of God. Her sense of security is shattered. In a similar way of which Jordan Peterson writes, wow, that's really messed up. Jordan Peterson writes, when something we can usually depend on breaks down, the more complex world that was always there, invisible and conveniently ignored, makes its presence known. It is then that the walled garden that we inhabit reveals its hidden but ever-present snakes. What we perceive when things fall apart is no longer the stage and settings of habitable order. It's the chaos forever lurking beneath our thin surfaces of security. And that thin surface of security is now disrupted with the death of her son. The rug has been pulled out from under her again. The rug is pulled out from under her again because let's not forget, she's a widow. She's already lost her husband, possibly lost her husband at a relatively young age, which is why we only read of one son here. But she did have that one son, that source of blessing and joy, and the object of the affections of her heart. She had that one son until now. And now he is taken as well. It's possible that any blow would have been easier to absorb for this widow than this. What sorrow is deeper for a mother than to have to bury her own child? And so it's likely that this woman would have concluded that it would have been better had Elijah not bothered to show up at all. It would have been better 
if she just would have been allowed to gather those sticks, prepare one last meal, and that her and her son could have died of salvation, uh, starvation together, rather than for her to now be carrying the weight of this grief and experiencing the depths of this sorrow. And none of this makes any sense. And that actually intensifies the crisis. It just doesn't make any sense. Why would God do this? Why would God miraculously preserve the flour and the oil, deliver us from starvation, sustain us, only to allow my son to get sick and then die? Why would God provide these blessings, fill my heart with joy in these blessings, guard by his grace these blessings, only to take my son away in the end? Why would God do that? It doesn't make any sense. Why would God act in such a distressing fashion? These are simply the words, this is the language, these are the questions that grief poses in the face of tragedies and calamities and crises that just don't make any sense. Why? Why? Those are the kinds of words that grief uses, the kinds of questions that grief raises. And some of you know that because you've used this exact language in your grief as well. When you face crises, it just don't make any sense. Why? Why would God do that? Some of you probably don't know that I'm the seventh of eight children. You probably also don't know that I've lost two of my siblings. So there's just six of us now. You also might know that my youngest brother was diagnosed with leukemia when he was less than one year old. And as a result of leukemia treatments he received at St. Jude's Children's Hospital as part of an experimental treatment group. He was the only one that survived, but he was left with severe physical and mental disabilities for the entirety of his life. And so our family expected to lose him at some point in time. And so when I received news when I was 20 years old in 1990 that one of my brothers had died, you would assume it would have been him. But it wasn't. God took my healthy 25-year-old brother instead. Why would he do that? That doesn't make any sense. Why would he take my healthy 25-year-old brother to leave my younger brother in a body that didn't work for another 12 years before he passed away? Doesn't make any sense. Why would God do that? Why does God allow a mother to carry a child for nine months only to deliver a child that is stillborn? Can you imagine the weight of that grief? Why does God allow a drunk driver to escape unharmed from an injury that that driver caused while causing serious injury or death to others? Doesn't make any sense. And why would God visit this widow with Elijah the prophet and miraculously sustain the life of her and her son only then to take away her son through this sickness? Well, this widow, like Job and like Jesus, and like you and like me, grasps for answers in the face of this grief. Just grasps for some kind of answer. Listen to her responses. Have I misjudged your intentions here, man of God? What is it that you have against me? Have you come here against me? Maybe I've misjudged the purposes of your presence here, and there's something evil and sinister lurking behind your presence all along, and I missed it. Or maybe I'm being judged. Maybe you've come to expose something that I've done. Maybe I'm being judged for a sin. Maybe I'm being punished for something that I've done because it feels like being punished. But it doesn't feel just because I don't know what I'm being punished for. 
And you know, we are all tempted to buy these answers in the crises that we face that don't make any sense. I mean, think about how familiar they are. God must be against me. That's why this has happened. God is against me. Or God is not as good as I originally believed him to be. And in the end, he's not trustworthy after all. Or maybe I brought this upon myself because of some kind of guilt, and I've done something to deserve this. These things sound familiar to those of us who have faced this kind of grief and crises that don't make any sense. But we should notice that the death of the widow's son poses a crisis not only for the widow, but also for Elijah. What is he to do? What is he to say? Well, in the face of this crisis, Elijah takes his confusion, and he has confusion himself. He takes that confusion to God, and he turns to God for the cure in verses 19 through 22. Now, unlike our contemporary culture, the idea of God bringing judgment upon someone for disobedience would not have been shocking or offensive to Elijah. I mean, after all, he knows that Israel as a nation is being judged at, the, at this very moment for their disobedience in the form of the covenant curse of drought. And surely, if God could judge his covenant people Israel for their disobedience, he could visit this widow and her son with this calamity in light of their disobedience. But what disobedience would they be being judged for? Remember that when the word of the Lord comes to this widow through Elijah the prophet, she responds with faith and obedience. We saw that in the previous passage. When the word comes to her, she responds by believing and obeying. So what is she being judged for? Elijah has the same question. He voices his own perplexity in verse 20. He doesn't understand what's going on either. But this whole episode should serve to remind us of something very important, and that is the presence of God and the presence of his word and our obedient response to that word does not insulate us from bad things happening to us. It does not prevent crises or tragedies from entering into our lives. If that were the case, faithful Christians who believe and obey would never suffer. Faithful missionaries would never be martyred. Godly Christian people seeking to walk by faith and obedience to their Lord and Savior would never come to harm or to hurt. But they do. You know it, and I know it. They do. Ask Job. Ask John the Baptist. Ask Jesus. And we don't have answers for why any of this happens either. We don't have the answers for this. And Elijah doesn't either. And notice that Elijah doesn't offer an answer either. Elijah doesn't give some kind of theologically impressive sounding answer that ends up just seeming insensitive and harsh and callous like, you know, none of us really in the end deserve any blessing from the hand of the Lord at all. And so you should just be grateful that you had a son at all. It's harsh and insensitive and unhelpful provide a kind of answer like that when you don't know the answers to that as true as that may be that we don't deserve blessings from the hand of God but why does this happen to the widow and not other people that's left unanswered but he doesn't do that he doesn't try to explain it he doesn't offer a single explanation but he doesn't do nothing either it's not like Elijah does nothing he asks for her son in verse 19 and then we read that he takes the boy to an upper chamber where he had been staying. And there 
he pours out his heart to the Lord. He voices his perplexity and confusion to the Lord. Do you want to know what to do in the midst of your pain and loss and disappointment and confusion and grief? Take it to the Lord. Pour out your heart to the Lord. We have countless examples of this in Scripture. This is modeled for us in Scripture. Consider the words of Psalm 44, verses 23 and 24. These words are addressed to the Lord by the psalmist. Awake, wake up, Lord. Why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? These are strong, bold, intense words that we read about in Scripture. Being addressed to God. Why? Why is your face hidden? Why do you seem to be sleeping? Why does it seem like you're ignoring us? Lord. And we can consider this as well from Lamentations chapter 2 verse 19. These are words addressed to God's people. Arise, cry out in the night at the beginning of the night watches. Pour out your heart like water before the presence of the Lord. Lift your hands to him for the lives of your children who faint for hunger at the head of every street. This is written at a time of, of exile and devastation to the people of Jerusalem and they're invited to pour out their hearts like water before the Lord. Take your grief and confusion to him. I was told by a good friend of mine one time that God's shoulders are big enough for you to cry on and his chest is big enough for you to beat on. He can handle your questions. He's not intimidated by your confusion. He invites you to go to him. And Elijah pours out his heart before the Lord. But he also makes a request to the Lord, an extremely bold request he asks for the cure. He asks for a cure for death. Look in verse 21 with me. Then he stretched himself upon the child three times. We don't know why he does this. The meaning of this is not explained to us. He stretches himself on the child three times, and he cries to the Lord, O oh Lord my God, let this child's life come into him again. Elijah is asking nothing less than for God to raise the dead. But can Elijah's God do this? Does Elijah's God have the power to do even this? Because we know that the God of Israel can cross the border outside of Israel and bring life and blessing in Gentile territory where death is expected. We know he can cross that border. But can Elijah's God cross another border? Can he enter into the domain of the dead and bring forth life and blessing there from the grave too? Because there's quite a different thing between delivering from a drought and delivering from the tomb. Can the God of Israel do that too? Well, the answer that Elijah receives, that the widow receives, and that we receive in verse 22 is yes. Yes. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah and the life of the child came into him again and he revived. Elijah's God can rescue from the grave. His arm is not too short to save and to raise the dead. You know, this is the first recorded instance in the Bible of a dead person being raised back to life. First recorded instance right here in 1 Kings chapter 17. But it's not the last. It's actually a preview of many more people raised from the dead 
but it's the promise of an even greater resurrection. Because as great as this display is, that the God of Israel has raised the dead back to life, and it's the God of Israel who does this. It's not Baal. Remember, Elijah is in Baal's territory. It's not Baal who restores life. It's the God of Israel. But he restores the widow's son only to die sometime later again. The widow's son doesn't live forever here. And so we're reminded here that the cure for the crisis of death ultimately calls for someone greater than Elijah. Someone who can do even more than what Elijah does here. It actually calls for the death of another son. It calls for the death of Jesus, God's son, who also stretched himself out. But he stretched himself out on a cross and died and remained in a tomb for three days. But then he rose from the dead in a glorified body, immortal, indestructible. And he declares himself to be the resurrection and the life. Elijah is not the resurrection and the life. The greater Elijah, Jesus, declares himself to be the resurrection and the life. And he has the power to confer an indestructible, resurrected, eternal life on all who look to him by faith. Listen to what Jesus says in, that is not the right slide. Well, it's gone for some reason. Listen to what Jesus says in John chapter 6, verse 40. It'll take me longer to find this in my Bible than it did for me to click. Just one second. This is what Jesus says. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. That's what Jesus promises, a greater resurrection than what the boy experiences in 1 Kings chapter 17 revived. But this event in 1 Kings 17 is but a foretaste of Easter and the resurrection power of God that will be displayed on the last day. And this widow, notice, witnesses that resurrection power of God, and that leads to the confession. We read in verse 23 that Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, See, look, your son lives. Elijah had carried him up from his mother's arms dead, but he carries him back down to his mother's arms alive. And so this widow, along with all of us, learns that no one in the grip of death is beyond the reach of God's power to rescue and to raise to new life. And Elijah presenting this son to his mother again with these words, look, your son lives, is a kind of validation of the first words that we actually hear Elijah speak in all of the Bible. We read them at the beginning of 1 Kings chapter 17. The first words of Elijah are as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives. See, your son lives just like the God of Israel lives. Your son lives because the God of Israel lives. And it's this that elicits this confession in verse 24. The woman said to Elijah, now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. This passage started with death and her confusion and her questions and her doubts, but it ends with this confession. Now I know that you are a prophet of the true God and that his word 
is truth. It is powerful and it is trustworthy. But I want you to see some irony here again because this is the kind of belief and affirmation in God and his word that should have been happening in Israel among the covenant people. But at the end of chapter 16, if you'll remember, the word of God is being despised in Israel because Ahab has instituted Baal worship along with his wife Jezebel and Hiel has rebuilt Jericho in absolute defiance of God's word and it brings death. But now at the end of chapter 17, God's word is acknowledged and celebrated by a Gentile widow because that word gives life. The testimony that should have been sounding from the lips of silent Israel is instead given by this heathen woman from Sidon. Yes, remember, she's from Sidon, which is the same place that Jezebel is from. And what a contrast between these two women from Sidon. Jezebel is a woman who possesses great worldly wealth and status as the queen of Israel. And yet she's left in the darkness and utter poverty of her idolatry. While this other woman, a widow with no worldly status or power, has the word of God and is rich, is rich beyond all measure and lives. <laughs> what a contrast. But remember that all of this is still in the context of the confrontation between Yahweh, the God of Israel, and Baal. The question that hovers over all of this is who is the God who gives and sustains life? Who is the God who can deliver from death? And this widow, again, along with all of us, learns in a very dramatic way. It's the God of Israel who is the God of life and who can deliver from death. But we also see at the end of this passage that this entire encounter was not just God's way of using this widow as an instrument to provide food to sustain his prophet. It's more than that. God is seeking the heart of this widow as well. He is pursuing her, this Gentile widow, by his grace. She is the object of his grace. Because our God then and still, by his grace, pursues people of every nation and every race, that they might have life and be brought into his kingdom by his power. God still seeking people from every nation and every race. And we are called to be his instruments in doing that as well. But we can also see at the end of the passage, what seemed like a tragedy was actually something that God used to elevate or lift this widow to a higher plane of blessing and faith and trust and hope in the living God. And God still uses tragedy and calamity and crises to lift us to a higher plane of blessing and faith and trust and hope in him. Because our God is a God who redeems tragedy. He is. He redeems crises. He redeems calamities. David just preached on this a couple weeks ago in the life of Joseph from Genesis. But we see this most clearly and ultimately at the cross, where the greatest darkness ended up being the path to our greatest blessing. When everything seemed lost, to death on Good Friday, God breaks in with the light of life on Easter morning. But we also need to see this, that what elicits this confession from the widow is not God's miraculous sustaining of the flour and the oil. That's not what elicits this confession. It's her witnessing of God's victory over the grave. That's what draws out this confession because our Lord confirms his prophet and the truth of his word by raising the widow's son. That confirmation comes to us in something even greater. Our God has confirmed 
that Jesus is not only his prophet, hopefully you can follow that, I know it's, it's not aligned correctly. God has confirmed that Jesus is not only his prophet, but has confirmed that Jesus is his one and only son, and that his word and promises are truth, because he's raised him from the dead. That's the confession that we can make, because Jesus is risen from the dead. As Tim Keller has written, the issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teaching, but whether or not he rose from the dead. He's not exaggerating there. The issue does hang on that. It's not whether you happen to like God's word. That word is confirmed as true because Jesus has been risen from the dead. And it's because he did that even in the midst of our perplexity and our confusion and our questions, in the face of crises that don't make sense, that we can make the confession that Jesus is God's son, his word is truth, and all of his promises to forgive us for our sins, to give us eternal life, and to redeem all of our tragedies are trustworthy. But we make that confession not because we witness God preventing all earthly tragedies from our lives. We can make that confession because the tomb of Jesus was empty. Jesus has risen from the dead and he has already begun to make all things new. That's already started in the resurrection of Jesus. And he will bring all of his promises to fulfillment and to completion. And so have you made that confession in the light of of the resurrection of Jesus, that Jesus is God's son and that his word is truth. Have you made that confession? And are you living in a way that's consistent with that confession? And are you living in accordance with his word, which is truth? Because if you are, then like this widow, you can know that the last word for you, the final word for you is not a word of loss or sorrow or grief. It's not even a word of death. Death is not the final word for you, believer. So the final word for you is a word of life, of blessing, of triumph, of victory, goodness and joy eternal in Christ Jesus who is risen from the dead and who gives resurrection life to all those who look to him by faith and give their hearts and lives to him. So may all of us, by grace, give our hearts and our lives to him. Let's pray. Our God in heaven, we come to you and declare that you are the God of life. You're the giver of life, sustainer of life, and we live of your grace. You are our creator and our redeemer, and you have promised an e eternal life in the one who has risen from the dead, who lived and died and gave himself for us. Help us now to fully give ourselves to him that we might truly find life everlasting. We thank you for that hope we have in the gospel, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand and join as we respond.